This is episode 118 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Beth Cormel. She's a practicing clinician who specializes in acute care medical speech pathology. She's been employed by UNC Rex Healthcare in Raleigh, North Carolina since 1995. During her time at UNC Rex, Beth has worked in outpatient, subacute, and acute care. She now focuses our practice exclusively in acute care, primarily covering the heart and vascular hospital. She has always gravitated towards critical care and continues to prefer working in the ICU. In addition to her work at UNC Rex, Beth trains clinicians in the use of fees. Since 1998, she has been instrumental in training therapists and implementing new fees programs throughout the country and internationally. She has also presented short courses on fees implementation at ASHA and the North Carolina Speech-Language Hearing Association, and has taught webinars focusing on medical speech pathology. She's been an SLP for over 27 years after graduating from UNC at Chapel Hill. And just a quick note that this will be our last episode of 2019. We'll be taking a two-week hiatus for the holiday season, so thank you to everyone who has tuned in and supported the podcast in 2019. Hope you have a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate. Hope it's a happy and safe holiday season and happy new year. And I will see you in 2020. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Beth. Hello, Teresa and everybody else. (laughs) Oh, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. And thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for coming on. I'm so happy to have you here. I'm excited to have this conversation and dive into this stuff with you. Yes, definitely. All right. So I know who you are, but tell the people a little bit about about yourself. Oh, Lord. Um, Okay. I am a speech pathologist and I work primarily in acute care. I work primarily in acute care and my specialty really is critical care. And that's really what I want to talk to you about some of that today. I also teach fees classes. I love doing fees, and I've been doing fees for years and years. Uh, We started our program at Rex in 1997, uh, which was quite the ordeal. Back then, it was not quite so easy to start programs because we didn't have a lot of support because people didn't really know what fees was. And then um, I've been teaching fees probably since 1999 now, and I teach basic fees classes. And hopefully some of you guys who are listening have come to some of my classes and are doing fees now because of that. That's always my goal for everybody is to be able to do fees. And um, now I'm starting to teach advanced fees classes with Selena Reese and Carolina Speech Pathology. And I feel really lucky to be able to do that. So, gosh. So, but I did want to start a little bit, if it's okay with all of you, to just talk a little bit more about myself and kind of where I've come from more than just working at Rex, because that's part of what this discussion is, is talking a little bit about how we have to change with the times. And when I was, um, when I was in grad school, I really always wanted to work in a hospital. 
uh, I thought wearing a white coat would be this glamorous thing that I would be doing working in a hospital. And those of you guys who work in medical speech pathology know that it's really fun. It's really exciting. And we do have very, very busy days, but it is not glamorous. There's really nothing glamorous about working in medical speech pathology. It is generally um, mentally, physically, emotionally draining. But again, as I said before, it's a rush, it's exciting, it's stimulating. And at the end of the day, really, what I hope to think is that I've touched people's lives and have made a difference for them. So that's really why I wanted to do it, even though I thought when I first started out that wearing that white coat was going to be all that. But it's really not all that. But it is really wonderful to do it. So where have I come from? So I've come from a world graduating in 1992, which is a really long time ago, that believe it or not, there were no actual classes in medical speech pathology. We had no coursework in dysphagia. I basically learned through on-the-job training, through awesome practicum sites that I had, and really, really good people and really good supervisors. And so that's really how I had to learn. I am someone who asks a lot of questions. <laughs> and I think that's a key. It's a key to what we do is making sure that you ask tons and tons of questions. And I always say I've been very, very lucky because I've been surrounded by really smart, intelligent people that have helped me out. And I think that that is, I've been blessed with that. And I, I do want to say that, that that has really helped me to kind of be where I am today. I have attended lots of continuing education. I've tried to keep up on the latest research. And of late, I listen to lots of podcasts. Oh, yay, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, it really does help. And then the other thing, of course, is the internet. I don't want to think of myself as a dinosaur. Um, I... <laughs> <laughs> but um, recently, a good friend of mine said that I was more like a unicorn and I thought that was a really sweet thing to say because we do have to constantly try and reinvent ourselves and keep working to get better. And one of the ways that we do that is also the internet. Because when I started, we didn't even have the internet. I sound like it's like when I was starting out, yeah, yeah, we had yeah. to go to the library. <laughs> so, you know, but that's kind of what we had to do. So it's been, um, it's definitely been a rush. It's been a lot of work to have to keep up with all the young whippersnappers and really, you know, life is just changing. Medical speech pathology is changing. Yeah, I, I think exactly what you said is just, it hits the nail on the head, Beth. It's just our, we can't expect things to be the same for 30 years. You know, everything's going to constantly evolve. Our research is going to constantly evolve and we owe it to our patients to learn Absolutely. that and put it into practice. Yeah. And feel good about what we're doing and feel good about ourselves uh, and I think that that's very, very important. Yeah, everything's evolving. Our patients are getting sicker. Patients are staying alive longer with chronic illness. And we're seeing, but we're also seeing lots and lots of, you know, older people in the hospital, but we're also seeing young people in the hospital with substance abuse, addictions. Again, when I started out, we had more med, um, mental illness facilities. Now there are fewer actually mental illness facilities. And we, we have more and more patients who are drug addicted, ETOH addicted, and patients, I mean, that we have to always be looking at that and, and working with these patients. And they're a huge challenge to what we're doing. We also see 
more folks who are uninsured with no place to go. So people are actually staying in the hospital longer. You know, we we think of acute care as we get them in, we get them out, get them in, get them out. But it's it's not always like that. Sometimes people are in the hospital for weeks or months. We've had the longest I've ever noticed. Somebody actually stayed in our hospital for a year, uh, which oh is God. crazy. Yeah, yeah. That Well, that's just, that was a whole ethical craziness situation. But, you know, people are staying longer because a lot of times they don't have a good discharge plan. And so they, they stick with us. And a lot of times we're rehabbing these patients in the hospital and we have no place to send them. So guess what? They stay with us. Also, medical treatments are evolving. And like you said earlier, we have to keep up on that. And speech pathology is continuing to change. Our view of normal swallowing continues to evolve. Thank goodness for all the awesome research that's coming out right now. We are changing too. So, and I am a firm believer in that we have to look at the whole body to understand underlying causes of dysphagia. So when I started out again, I would point to, I know you can't see me, but I would point to like about where the top of my breasts are. (laughs) And I would say, I don't do anything from there below. And I do from everything up above. And that is not the case anymore. We look at everything as the whole person. We have to look at their GI system. We have to look at all of their overall body functioning systems, the whole entire patient to really understand what's going on with their swallow. And I, I really believe that that's changed over the course of the years. And I'm glad that we're doing that. Medical, we know more about the medical piece of it and what's going on with the whole body. You're going to understand they're swallowing a whole lot better. And of course, we have to keep up again with the latest research, the latest procedures, the latest exercises, all that stuff is continually changing. And if we don't keep up with it, we're not doing our patients justice. So my philosophy is determining what the patient's quality of life is. We cannot always determine what their quality of life is. What I think may be quality of life for somebody is not quality of life. I mean, it's, it may be different from what they believe. I have a patient right now that has very, very severe cancer. Um, and everybody is advising him that he have hospice care. And he's saying, no, I, as long as I'm living and breathing, I'm going to continue. And this is what I want to be. I want to be alive. Um, even though it's not what I would consider to be quality of life, it's, it's what he determines. So we have to always keep that in mind that somebody's patient's wishes are really what we need to be working towards and what their goals are. I'd love to kind of hear how you navigate that in acute care, because I think that's a, a you know, we, we hear things, well, that doesn't work in our setting. That might work in your setting, but that doesn't work in our setting. You know, in, in acute care, we just have to get them better and get them out, you know, and I think it can apply for every setting and it should apply for every setting. Yeah. I think that first of all, we have to talk to our patients and we have to spend the time. I always say my biggest problem and my biggest blessing is that I pull up a chair. (laughs) It doesn't help with my productivity, trust me. And sometimes I work longer days to be able to do this, but I really try and get to know my patients well. And I do have conversations with them. And of course, it's not for me to decide oh, let's have a conversation about your quality of life. But I do try and get to know them a little bit better so that I can have a discussion with the medical team. We are very, very blessed to have the most awesome palliative care team where I work. 
and they are so helpful in helping to determine what is quality of life for a patient, what their goals of care are, and they, they're so helpful, and we work very closely together with this team, which brings me to the next point is that team, the team approach is vital for determining all of this for our patients. And we're very, again, very blessed at Rex Healthcare to have a very good team approach. And we are not only allowed, but we're encouraged to be part of the team. So we are team with um, intensivists, nurses, palliative care, even phys- other physician practices, just the whole team effort. And that is the work to get to know what the patient wants. And that's really where we need to be going with all of this. So did that kind of answer your question? Very much so. Okay. That was perfect. Thank okay. you. Sure. And then again, just looking at the whole person, not just a mouth, mouth and the throat, because there's more to this person than just throat. And then again, working as a team. The thing I didn't mention, PT and OT. So PT and OT are also really, really integral I hope I said that right. <laughs> As part of the team, we are all located in my hospital in the same section of the hospital, and we are always spend lots and lots of time together um, working with our patients. I co-treat actually quite a bit, which in critical care is really, really important in my opinion, because these patients are pretty sick. We need to go in there, and I always say that the, the PTs and the OTs will shake them and wake them for me. And then I can do some different things with them. So again, team approach. And don't be afraid to rely on your other rehab specialists to try and get the job done and work with you. So does that make sense? Yes, very much so. So also, as far as the evaluation, when I approach the evaluation, I like to think of myself as a detective. I walk in, before I walk into the room, I always try and gain a hypothesis of what I'm going to see from the chart, by talking to some of the other specialists. It's not, again, it's not just a quick cursory chart review. I I take the time and I really delve into it, um, looking at the chart and then also, again, talking with with further other staff to um, form that hypothesis. Now, I know that all of you guys are you know how to do chart reviews and all of that, but I really wanted to spend just a couple of minutes if if it's okay to consider some of the things that we do in a chart review in acute care. Yeah. And some of the things that, again, looking at the whole total picture, which is what I'm trying to drive home. But some of the things that we do look at, of course, are the medical history, not just for speech therapy, but focusing on what is their neurohistory, their respiratory history, their GI history, their cognitive history. Um, looking at all of that different thing, those different things, and how do they apply to this patient and apply to this this whole body perspective that we're looking at? Going on to medications, meds can contribute to dysphagia, as we all know. But keep in mind that sometimes, of course, they can alter mentation. They can cause dryness, GI upset. They can some of them even produce overproduction of saliva, which is what I learned from Selena Reese the other day, that um, that I didn't actually know that. And again, always learning, always trying to learn something new every day. But some of these meds actually do produce overproduction of saliva. Keep in mind the age of the patient. Now, 
the thing about that is the age of the patient is important because you think to yourself, well, if Mrs. Smith is 95 years old, how much do I really want to be doing for this person? What do I want to do? What should we be doing for this person? But, you know, age sometimes is just a number. We have plenty of patients who are 50 years old and they are so sick and they have not lived a great lifestyle. They're having, they have multiple comorbidities and they're very, very ill. So you can't always take age as a factor. But if I do see somebody who is, you know, over 90 years old, usually I like to have a discussion again with family with the patient themselves, what are their goals of care at this point in their lives? And what is it that they really want to do? Do you really want to be on thick and liquids when you're 95 years old? Do you really want, you know, what is it that we're doing? Do you really want these things? And I think that that's, that's an important thing to consider. Do you have the, has the patient had any prior speech therapy? You know, sometimes it's listed in the chart and sometimes it's not. And when you go in and you talk to the patient or the family, they're like, oh yeah, we had this great speech therapist when I had my stroke 20 years ago and, and they'll tell you about it. And not all that information is always in the chart. And sometimes you have to gain that. Can I, um, can I ask you a question, Beth? Absolutely. I, I thought, I found this to be an interesting debate um, online a few weeks ago. There was, so, so my beef, you know, working in skilled nursing <laughs> is we get all these patients from acute care on, thickened liquids or something and never had a swallow study or anything. Could be a million reasons. We all understand that. But the conversation I got into the other day was that, well, the patient came to us on honey thick liquids. They came from the sniff to the hospital on honey thick liquids. So our job is to only get them back to baseline, which for them is honey thick liquids. So that's why we didn't do any further studies or try to advance their, their diet. And I was like, like, <laughs> so I, I it, it was an interesting conversation because I understood where the acute care therapist was coming from on one hand. But on the other hand, I was like, no, we just keep jockeying this poor patient back and forth and they're not getting I I wanted them to have had a, a modified in the hospital that they didn't get. And, and the SLP said, well, I'm not going to do it because they're fine and honey thick and that's their baseline. You are hurting my heart. OK. I mean, you are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seriously, you're hurting my heart. Yeah. Or you're not, but but the, um, the general premise out there that, that, again, what is this patient, why is this patient on honey thick liquid? That is not necessarily their baseline. And nobody knew, nobody could figure it out. Right, right. How many people should be on long-term honey thick liquid? I, um, I, I think that that is... is something that I wouldn't want. And, and the research really doesn't support that either. So I disagree. I disagree. I don't want to be nasty, about it, but I, I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. No, my, my thing was just that no one, no one knew why the patient was on honey thick liquids. So I felt like the patient and the family. Well, and you know, we get that yeah. sometimes. Yeah. We get, we get patients from other facilities, whether it's skilled or whether it's from who knows where, and they're on thickened liquids. And so if we don't know, the first thing I'm going to do is an instrumental study because I, and in my opinion, and we're so lucky in acute care because we are 
we in our facility we have these. We have access to modified barium swallow studies. We do we request many barium swallow studies on patients. You know, regular barium swallow studies. We have access to all of these tests that that our therapist in the skilled nursing facility doesn't usually have. I mean, we are, I would say I sit in the ivory tower and things are so easy for me to be able to access and to be able to do these swallow studies. Not everybody, and I understand this, not every acute care therapist has access to all of this. And I am very lucky that I do. And and I also understand that therapists in other facilities don't have access to all of this either. But if you do have access to it, why aren't you using it? I, I don't understand. So that was that was just my whole issue. I know, I know. For that poor patient. I know. That was yes. just the, the yeah. person I wouldn't want that to be me or my mama. Yeah. The poor person was just so caught up on just that was their baseline. So that was what their job in acute care is, is to just keep them a baseline. And I was like, I just can't agree. <laughs> So well, and that's another thing we have to determine really what is their baseline? What is their baseline swallowing function? What is their baseline? Right. We 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 need to determine that. And so good question. Thanks, Beth. Thanks. Not a good outcome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But but I think I mean these are the conversations I love to have on this podcast because like I said, I could see where the person was coming from. That's just kind of the way that the hospital facility was, but I just greatly disagreed with it because nobody knew what the patient's actual baseline was. Right. You know, and right. so I think that patient at least owed was owed a swallow study to at least figure this out. You know, is yeah. that truly yeah. the patient's baseline or is that just because that's what someone put them on eight months ago, you know? Right. So going back to uh, where we are, so looking at baseline stuff, but also looking at baseline for weight loss. Also, are these patients fed? Do they need to be fed? Like what is, you know, you can usually walk into a patient's room if if these patients are debilitated, if they they look like they have not had good nutrition, you know, these patients are much higher risk for aspiration pneumonia. I mean, we can look at Langmore's studies and we can look at different studies that have said that patients were debilitated patients who are fed, looking at all that, of course, that's the, the you know, Hallmark Langmar study that looks at that. But we have to take that into account when we see these patients. What is their baseline mobility status? Are they bed bound? They're going to be much higher risk for aspiration pneumonia. Can they move around? And then what are the current labs? I'm a big believer in looking at labs. Every single metal, medical speech metal, medical speech pathologist should be looking at labs. Again, it is like our, we have the ability, we have the techno, we have the technology, why aren't we using it? So if we're looking at this labs, these labs, and we're looking at the whole overall function of the patient, I mean, we must be doing that because all of these labs are telling us a story about the patient, looking at their white blood cell, you know, do they have an infection? They're higher is their cognitive impairment or swallowing impairment because of it. Looking at their BUN and creatinine and looking at toxicology and all the different aspects of, of that is going to tell us a story before we even walk in the room. And so every therapist really owes it to them and to themselves, to themselves and to the patients to really learn about that. Imaging, looking, of course, we all look at imaging, MRIs, chest x-rays, CTs, all of that. And then O2 requirements. So 
nasal cannula, the big thing these days, so is high flow nasal cannula. Dr. Coyle has looked at a lot of, and I love Dr. Coyle. He has looked at high flow nasal cannula and what, you know, what is that? We have so many more patients who are on it these days. And, you know, basically it can be affecting the pressures in their pharynx. And so if patients are on 30 to 35 percent, then what we're looking at is it could change their swallowing function. So you have to keep that in mind when you're looking at these patients. And then of course, sedation, um, what kind of sedation are they on? Life support, what kind of lines do they have? What kind of drains? What kind of, do they have temporary pacers? Are they on the vent? And so before I even walk into the room, I want to know what those different lines are and what kind of kind of restrictions do I need to be sitting this patient up um, when I'm moving the patients in bed? You know, I don't want to pull out their temporary pacer. I don't want to, to disrupt anything. So I need to know what these different lines are. So I'm careful with my patient. And then of course, current diet feeding method. And along with that is the status of their GI system and their pooping history. Pooping history. I am a speech pathologist that loves pooping history. We are one big long tube and I'm always asking, when was the last time my patient had a bowel movement and I walk into the room and I'm tapping on the patient's belly and I'm saying, it should not sound like I'm playing the bongos. If it sounds like I'm playing the bongos, you are not having bowel movements like you need to be. And if you're not having bowel movements, then you're probably not gonna eat well and you're not gonna swallow well. So think about, again, the whole body picture of what we're looking at. You must work with a lady named Julie Huffman. I do. (laughs) (laughs) She she said the same thing and she was like, oh my God, I'm horrified. I just said that on on your podcast. I was like, it's okay. It's important. (laughs) (laughs) We have to talk about the poop. (laughs) I know we probably don't have to call it poop, but anyway. That's okay. That's okay. So in addition to all of this stuff, don't forget to ask about family support system, because if we're making recommendations for these patients and they don't have a family support system, we need to know that. We need to know what the scoop is. Is family going to be supportive of our recommendations? Are they going to follow through on things that we're asking them to do? So we need to know that. We need to know, again, the goals of the care of the the goals of care of the patient, but also the family. You know, what, what is it that they want for their loved ones? Can their loved ones say, and if they can't, what is it that they want? What do they want from us? And really get to know the patient if you can, even if they're intubated or whatever. I want to know that patient as a person. I want to know what they did for work before they came in the hospital, even if they're retired, what is it that they like to do? What are their hobbies? What is it that they enjoy in life? If family members can bring in pictures of them when they aren't sick, because we need to connect with these people from a, you are a human being. I want to connect with you. I want to do everything in my power that I can to make things better for you, whatever that is for you. And, and I really believe in in looking at this person, not as a sick person, but what is it that you are and how can we do, what can we do to get you back to where you should be? So I I do ask family members to, to help us out with that. So then after all of this, what we do then is if the patient is intubated or if they're intubated, or if they're even trached, and let's say they're on the vent and they aren't communicating well. In our hospital, we've started an early mobility program. 
And I just wanted to spend a few minutes talking about that because I really think this is really important for you guys to know about. I know that this is sort of a push in acute care for these days. And for you guys who want to learn more about it, Vanderbilt and John Hopkins is doing, they're doing fabulous things with, um, with early mobility stuff. And that's basically where a lot of our information has come from. But delirium, so it goes to, for us, it's delirium. I want to talk about a study that's shown um, some studies, not just one, but studies in general have shown the incidence of delirium in mechanically dented patients to be as high as 85%. So the, the problem with that is, I mean, it, that delirium unto itself is a problem, but they're finding that a huge percentage of these people who have initial delirium in acute care go on for the rest of their lives to never get back to their cognitive baseline. And so we want to sort of attack it at the forefront and get these patients identified. So how we do that in our hospital is <laughs> several ways. Um, we ask our respiratory therapists, we ask our nurse um, managers. And to be honest with you, I usually just walk around the unit and kind of take a look at these patients and see who might be appropriate for us to start doing some early mobility stuff. So for those of you who don't really know what it is, it's working together with, initially we go in with occupational therapy, which I think is a little different than a lot of early mobility programs. A lot of early mobility programs um, start with physical therapy. But we start with, um, with occupational therapy. So what we do is we work on spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. And this is done in conjunction with the nurse and the respiratory therapist. So the basic premise is we want to get these patients on less sedation, get, find some way of getting them waking up, um, sedating them less, and then giving them some form of communication so that they can start working out of, if they have delirium, preventing delirium. So we want some form of communication for these patients. So it's working on communication and cognition, and then PT and OT, OT also work on strength in their mobility while we're doing this. So these patients are intubated, they're on the vent, and we're getting in there really early with them. It's been actually pretty successful for us. So how we do it too is each patient is scored with the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale or a RAS score which is a 10-point scale that gives us baseline information on their agitation versus sedation. And from then on, what we do is hopefully we can show that they're showing improvement in their sedation levels. So an example is like on a scale, if a patient is like a negative three, we consider that to be moderate sedation. With They have some movement, they have some eye opening, but they aren't really connecting with us with eye contact. So hopefully over the next couple of days, that sedation rating is going to be improved and we're going to see some, some, so that we're better able to work with the patients. All of our patients also get a, it's called a confusion assessment method for the ICU or the CAM ICU. And that's a full point scale, which helps to identify delirium. So all of our patients, that's pretty much what we start with, with those patients who are really, again, early mobility kinds of folks. But of course, we also work with patients who are just, who are intubated or not intubated or have been extubated. Maybe they've never even been intubated at all, of course. 
So um, as soon as those patients are ready to be worked with, we start working on their clinical swallow evaluation and we rely very heavily with fees in our facility, especially in critical care. And I have to say, <laughs> everybody who works in the ICU and everybody in a long-term acute care hospital should be doing fees. Thank you. Everybody. Shot it from the rooftops, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> because it's they're the perfect patient population for it. And of course, I mean, I'm a believer in modifieds too. I mean, don't get me wrong, but those patients who are in the ICU are perfect for it. When well, let me let me ask you, Beth. Yeah. Since you are such a unicorn. <laughs> Thanks. When I guess <laughs> when did that I guess when did you come up with that belief? When did when did you say I believe everybody that's working in these settings should have access to this? Oh. Let's see. Let me think about that. <laughs> I want to tell you forever, but that's not true because the patients, like I say, if I go back to my original few statements that the patients are getting sicker and, you know, I used to take patients down for modified barium swallow studies and that was a disaster with these, with these very critical ill patients because you'd have to travel with a team. You have your nurse, your respiratory therapist, you've got like everybody in the world traveling with you. And it was really hard on the patient to be able to travel. It was really hard on the staff members to travel to radiology. So I think it, you know, when I think back to how many years ago that the patients really, like, I mean, we've always had sick people, but the acuity has gone up, I'd say, over the last maybe 15 to 15 years or so. And I have to say, probably over the 15, past 15 years, our patients are much, much, much sicker. So I would say, and that's too, when like before 15 years ago, we didn't really have long-term acute care hospitals very much that I can even remember. And so I think when that came into being and these people were trying to get them out of the hospital and, and all of that. So I would say maybe if I had to answer, I'd say maybe the last 15 to 20 years. I hope that answers it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I kind of was wanting to know, like, like, I guess what made you finally kind of draw that line in the sand? Like, because obviously you practiced for years without it. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you have it and you're a huge proponent for it. And I think that's when I get kind of pretty fired up about things is these people that don't have it and they say it's a silly tool. You know, it's, it doesn't do anything. I'd rather just do modifieds. And I'm like, have you done it? Do you have access to yeah. it? Like, Yeah. And, and the other thing too is the, another reason why we do it, not just because of, of difficulty getting the patients down, but those patients are perfect in the ICU because of their secretion management. There's so many issues with secretions in our ICU patients. They have a 50 million lines and drains and all of these different things too. So I guess that does go back to accessibility, but just everything about them. Um, we want to look, as a lot of them have been intubated. We really want to look at how much swelling is in their throat. We want to see exactly what things are looking like down there. So they're the perfect patients for it. I can't imagine why you wouldn't do it. So uh, a big proponent of that. I would like to take a second to thank our wonderful sponsor, EndoHD. EndoHD is a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies. EndoHD is a compact fee system with a maneuverable design that provides convenience to do fees in more locations in the hospital, ICU, CCU, PICU, exam room, patient room. 
At Altara Vision, they combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. So go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fees systems requirements. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. Anyway, at this point, what I kind of wanted to do, I don't know what we're looking for time here, but what I wanted to do, we're great, Beth. I would wanted to go over just a couple of case studies and kind of tie all of this together and looking at just a few patients and looking at the whole overall situation with these patients and why we did what we did and, and what the challenges, because I think that's pretty much what I wanted to show here is some of what the challenges are that we faced with some of these patients and how we tried to look at the overall function of the patient. So are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> so my first case study is this um, female, but unfortunately for her, surgery was complicated by adhesions resulting in cardiac arrest. She had a right femoral artery perforation and left mean thrombosis. So kind of everything went wrong for this poor woman. She had to be placed on ECMO, which for you guys who don't know what that is, it is basically a heart-lung bypass machine that patients are placed on, not in surgery, but at the bedside. Um, so basically, we're, we're not using their heart and lung. We're bypassing that. So it's as much life support as you can pretty much be given. So she was very, very critically ill. After she was taken off BiPAP, a balloon pump was placed, which is a device that's placed into the heart to give the heart more support. And she had to be placed on continuous renal um, replacement therapy, which is basically continuous dialysis. She had an open chest meaning her chest, after they had to open her up, they couldn't close it back up. So her basically her chest was open. And then she had to be taken back to the OR many times for eventually chest closure and wound vac placement. So she had lots of surgery. Um, she had trach, of course, and lots of lines in, bilateral drains in her, her um, chest cavities. So she had a lot going on, this poor woman temporary pacers. She also had an OG tube placed um, when we saw her. So she had OG tube, which is an oral gastric tube in her mouth because it's OG and it was being used to suck stuff out of her stomach. So again, very sick person. I actually fought to um, see this woman, not for her swallowing to start, but again, for early progressive mobility, because I was concerned that she had been so sick and in the hospital for at this point, already a month. And I wanted to get in there and I wanted to start working on her communication function and her cognition. So, and she couldn't talk because she had this honking huge OG tube in her mouth. So we couldn't really do anything with that. So uh, we started working on her with some cognition and some communication. And this poor lady, even though she was totally normal coming into the hospital, she was so weak that she couldn't even move her hands or her arms at this point. So um, working on cognition and communication was a little bit of a challenge. So after seeing her for a little bit of time, the OG tube was removed, but the challenge came for us because the physician, who was a cardiovascular physician, very, very protective of this patient, which I totally understand, but he insisted, and I put this in capital letters, insisted that his patients start eating. 
<laughs> so yeah, so he was insistent that she had to have she had to eat because he was afraid that her her morale was going down, and she he thought that if he fed her, that again food is love. Food is, you know, so much more than just eating that if he were able to feed her, then everything would be all right with her, which is kind of an interesting thing from coming from the point of death. And, you know, we get the OG tube out and he's like, oh, let's feed her. So even though she wasn't ready and we knew she wasn't ready, we proceeded with fees. She didn't do well on the fees. It was awful. Uh, She's aspirating secretions. It was not a good situation, but at least we were able to give him a visual of one, her vocal cord wasn't working very well. So she had a unilateral vocal fold paralysis and she's aspirating her secretions. So he was able to at least see that. And in addition to that, we got a baseline. We were able to establish a baseline for her swallowing and we were able to establish what kind of therapy program that we wanted to institute for her. And we wanted to really push the fact that she needed physical and occupational therapy too. So again, looking at the whole body approach for this lady. So we started allowing some ice chips, completed significant, like lots of oral care with her, started working on PTOT strengthening, started doing strengthening exercises with with, um, speech therapy. So we had a pharyngeal exercise program set up for her. Also put a passing mirror valve on her. Can't forget that. So we did all these different things for her. She had a total of four fees. So four fees over the course of a couple of weeks. And believe it or not, after the four fees, she ended up on a regular consistency diet. She, however, was very fearful of eating, had an anxiety problem, which do you blame her? You know, and so honestly, a lot of my therapy session was sitting down with her, pulling up a chair, talking to her about what her fears were as far as eating, um, what our plan was, how we were going to overcome this, what are some things that we could do to get more nutrition in her because we wanted to really, really avoid a peg. We did not want to put a peg in her. We wanted her to eat. We wanted her to, to, again, have that morale booster of being able to eat. It took so much coaxing and cheerleading to do this. I spent a lot of time so she eventually got the duo tube out. She had to do a tube in. She eventually got the duo tube out. So she definitely has been a challenge for us. So as far as the challenges, the good things were we never battled delirium with her. She never had delirium. And that was really, that was wonderful. She also had a very, very supportive family who was very helpful to us and very supportive to her. She had a great medical team. The medical staff was fabulous with this patient. Her challenges were anxiety. I mean, it was a battle, a battle with this lady, critical illness, and her physician. Her physician, even though she had a great medical team and he saved her life, he was definitely a challenge for us. He challenged us every single day uh, with her care and and what we were going to be doing with her next. So anyway, that's my first case study. Well, thanks for sharing that, Beth. Yeah, you're welcome. So my second case study is a little bit different. This was a male who's admitted with pneumonia. This fella had a a history of obstructive sleep apnea with permanent trach placement 
because he had that permanent trach placement from his teens and he was also diabetic. So when we saw him, um, we saw him actually several times uh, for different admits, but this last admit that we saw him for, he had lots of complications because of, because of his super large weight. He had very severe skin breakdown due to immobility and inability to um, to move in the bed. I mean, he couldn't even roll himself in the bed. And for us, moving him around in the bed was definitely a challenge. I mean, we had lifts that would help us in the ceiling. They would help lift to move this patient, but he was very difficult to move. And the type of bed that he was in was, it was like a clinitron bed, but it was different because it was like a clinitron bed that was for very morbidly obese patients. It kind of gives you an idea of kind of the challenge that we had with positioning him. So when we initially saw him, he was unable to be successfully liberated from the vent. And he continued, he had feeding tubes in um, because his, his, believe it or not, his, even though he was a, a large fella, his, his very malnutrition, his nutritional status was terrible. So we had feeding tubes in him, but he continued to pull them out. And the um, the physician said he was not a candidate for a PAGBI or a surgical G-tube because of his size and because of his overall medical status and respiratory condition. And so there was no way for him to really get any sort of feeding tubes placed other than a tube. And for you guys, anyway, a tube is like a Dubhoff tube or like a small bore feeding tube. We just call them tubes in our hospital, just to clarify that. So he was effectively able to communicate his needs and wants. And in capital letters, he really wanted to eat. He refused the passenger valve, but he was communicating by leak speech. So he was still able to tell us. It's not like we were guessing about this. I mean, he told us that he really wanted to eat. But um, here we got a guy who is 750 pounds. He's on full vent support. He is flat in the bed. There's no way that we could even put his head up. I mean, he was, any speech pathologist walking into the room would say, there's no way on earth this guy is going to eat and there's no way that he's going to eat safely. So we said, you know what, let's just go for it and let's do, do a fees on him. So the fees was done again with him in a reclined position. He did not have a passenger valve on. He was on full vent support. And believe it or not, he had just a little bit of penetration on the fees. And the reason he had penetration was not because of any sort of weakness issues. It was mostly because of his size. You know, as Selena Reese always says, if you don't have nooks and crannies down there, if you don't have the nooks and crannies in your throat, you know, we have piriform sinuses and we have all of this in order to have a normal swallow. But patients who are that size, a lot of times they lack the nooks and crannies so um, he, that was really the only problem that he had again. And, and you know what, that could have been his baseline swallow. Right, right. You know, again, this guy, we, do, we don't know exactly what his baseline was. So we did put him on a dysphagia 2 diet. And we did have, at the time, we did put him initially on some thickened liquids just because of his status as, you know, he was very tenuous being on the vent and all. So um, his size was definitely a challenge. And his family situation was a challenge for us. But the success of it was that we said that he was able to eat. We provided him with that. with that, And to, to let you know, he, he passed away shortly after that. 
And so we, we felt really good. The whole team felt really good about the fact that even though it was not a good situation for him, that even at the end, he was able to eat some of the things that he really wanted to. And we actually ended up liberalizing his diet and he was put on a regular consistency diet and he was able to have stuff brought in that he wanted. And, and it was a good situation. So I hate the fact that it didn't end up globally well for him. But in the time that he was with us, it was a good situation. Do you know what, what the cause of death was, Beth? You know, I, sepsis, you know, I know so many people. Okay. Yeah. Sepsis. From so many people will be like, well, it's cause you fed him and you shouldn't have. No, you know? no, no, no. It was actually from sepsis from skin. Um, his, he had so many horrendous infections because of his very large size. He had so much skin breakdown that when he came to us, I guess the word is is it emacerated? I guess that's the word that they use where the skin is actually like between the folds of fat. He had so much breakdown and he had so much infection and they, there was nothing really that they could do to, to save his life because, because of his situation. And he was diabetic. So he didn't, I mean, he just couldn't heal properly. So it had absolutely nothing to do with us feeding him. Yeah. No. Good. Good to hear. Yeah. That was a good question though. I I know I just get attacked by everybody who would say, it's because you fed him. No, 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 no. Yeah, no. So, and then if you want me to, I can give you one last case study. Yeah, that'd be perfect. Decide if you want to use this or not. But, um, okay, so this last guy, he's a, a young man too. He came to us with cardiac arrest. A lot of patients come to me that work in the heart and vascular tower um, with cardiac arrest. That's why a lot of these patients have these issues. He came in with prolonged CPR rescue attempts. They worked on him for over 20 minutes um, for CPR rescue attempts. In addition, so they found out the reason he had a cardiac arrest is because he had a heart attack. So he also diagnosed with anoxic encephalopathy. And then also during his stay with us, he had multiple codes while he was with us. So he was a very unstable patient initially. He also was trait because of his long stay with us and with all the codes that he had. I just wanted to say he did have an MRI while he was with us, which did determine that he had some metabolic ischemic injury. So they did think he had a little bit of hypoxic brain injury. Um, while he was down for so long. So when we saw him, we initially saw him three weeks into his patients, into the patient's stay. And we started with our EPM program, which is the early progressive mobility. And I went in with the occupational therapy. He was severely agitated, like to the point of climbing out of the bed, very, very, very agitated. So what did they have to do? They had to try and sedate him. Um, because he was a danger to himself. So unfortunately, we were dealing with a lot of sedation medication for this guy. So over the course of the time that we initially saw him, so about a week into his stay with speech therapy, not over his stay in the hospital, but with us, he was able to go on trach collar. They did reduce the sedation and passenger trials were initiated and he was able to tolerate it. So we were able to go ahead and proceed with the fees about, I'd say, 10 days into um, our whole situation with him as his education was de- agitation was decreasing. And he did pretty well. I mean, we ended up putting him on dysphagia one with the dreaded honey thick liquids. And the reason that I wanted to, to talk about this a little bit is 
I am a firm believer in trying to never put my patient on honey thick liquid. And I'm glad we talked about that a little bit earlier because I do everything in my power not to, but you know, I also believe that there's a time and a place for everything. I I couldn't agree more with that, Beth. Yeah. Yeah. Goes against my grain to have to do that. But here's a guy that has a do tube in place. Again, we want to try avoid putting a peg in him if all possible. And so I said, okay, let's try it. And so we did dysphagia one with honey thick liquids. And again, remember, he's still in the ICU. So I don't think that that's totally out of the realm of, of something that we should be doing. He, we did a lot of work with family education. He was from a, how do I say? He was, he was foreign patient. He wasn't from here. Um, so we had to do a lot of education with, with family. So over the course of time, he did really quite well. He ended up getting off of the thickened liquids. He ended up on a regular consistency diet. What we did is we did lots of cognitive therapy with him because really between the weakness, his other problem really was a lot of cognitive impairment. We also did pharyngeal exercises. We did respiratory muscle training on him and we worked with him on a lot of continuous use of strategies. And our challenges for this guy were heavy use of sedation medication, the fact that he was hypoxic and his cognitive impairment. But again, I think that it just shows that it's just a different kind of case that probably a little bit simpler, but he really wasn't simple at all because we had all these other challenges to, to deal with. And he did well. He, um, he left the hospital, went for some rehab, and hopefully he's, he's doing great now. So he was an overall success for us. Good. So those are my case studies. I hope they're helpful. Thank you for sharing yeah. those, Beth. I think it's it's always helpful just to hear how different SLPs think through different scenarios and, you know, why the decisions are made the way they are. And so anyway, do you have questions for me or? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think so, Beth. I think this was great. I just, I was loving your last comment in that you put here, but you know, when I asked kind of about your favorite research paper or article, but you just said you just love the access to the internet and podcasts now. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that there's like one study that's a game changer for me, especially yeah. because I've been in practice for so many years. You know, you're like, well, what's the game changer for you? I'm like, uh, I, it's a really hard question. I like to follow leaders in the field, of course, such as Langmore, Coyle, Humbert, I mean, all the leaders in our field are just amazing. And I, I try and keep up with that as much as possible. I feel blessed to be in a time when the internet is at our fingertips and we have access to education, including podcasts. Seriously. I mean, it's awesome because you can be driving down the road, going to work, and you can be educating yourself. I mean, what an awesome tool that is. You know, you can be going for a walk. You can be exercising at the gym. I wish. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, it's use what you have. And, you know, I, I'd like to say I'm an old, I'm an old dog that I hopefully am learning new tricks, but, you know, eventually new therapists are going to be old dogs too. And people really have to just work to keep up with it. It's, it's a job. And, and I admire the people who are around me who do keep up with it, which brings me to 
the most important thing, maybe not the most important thing, but I do want to give a shout out to the thing that really has inspired me more than anything in my career are the really awesome people around me. I am surrounded by brilliant, strong women. Sorry, you guys out there. <laughs> but honestly, I, I have been surrounded by incredibly smart women um, who are loving, who share, who, who want to better themselves and the people around them and better the field. And that's the way I think that we should all be. And there, we should all be supporting each other. And we shouldn't be, you know, looking this as backbiting and fighting each other. I think it should be just a collaborative effort to make the field better and to make ourselves better. So I have to say, I love my Rex co-workers, including Julie Huffman. <laughs> love my Julie Huffman, Charity Levette, Brooke Richardson. I am surrounded by incredibly strong women that I work with who are very bright. I'm thankful. I've always had the support of Susan Butler, Lisa Markley, Chrissy Brackett, Selena Reese, and all the folks at Carolina Speech Pathology. They are amazing women. And even though I work in acute care, I work in the ivory tower, I understand the challenges that you guys have out there that don't always have access to the technology that I do. You guys who are working in skilled nursing facilities, you have a hard job of it. Um, you don't always have access to fees, or if you do, you bring your fees into you. It is not an easy place to be. And keep, keep striving for education. You know, all of us need to do that. But I, I do recognize that it is, this is not an easy job. And so be supportive of each other and keep learning. And that's it. All right. Well, thanks so much, Beth. <laughs> you are welcome. Thank you so much, Teresa. I'm glad we could finally make this I happen. Know. I hope this is really helpful for you guys. This was very helpful. Thanks so, again. You are welcome. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.